Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. A lot's happened, I think, since we, since we last had a coffee. I think it was almost a couple of years ago. And you've, you've signed a lot of big deals, you've taken off more office space. It's good to see you. Life is a lot more expensive today than when it was <laughs> when we first met. That is very true. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I wanted to uh, learn a little bit more in our discussion today was, I guess, your superhero origin story. <laughs> I, you know, I was reading that you, you, came, you actually came across from Iran uh, at quite a young age. Uh, you actually grew up. Was it, was it in Tehran? Correct. And the, I, I grew up in Tehran, and then I moved to the... Caspian Sea, so I spent my teenage years as a beach bum, which is which is the best thing I can wish for anybody <laughs> for their teenage years. Uh, I was blessed with a wonderful family who who did phenomenally well for his children to do well. What did your father do? My father was a civil engineer. Right. He was an engineer. My mother was a uh, she drew maps uh, for the government of Iran. Um, so we had engineering and science in our family all the time. Uh, but my family were also very socialist with a small s. So they, uh, they didn't believe in material things in life. Uh, the reputation was meant a lot and doing good meant a lot. So we were brought up with those values um, and, uh, and, and they were also uh, very, uh, they were very appreciative of, of science and study. And, uh, uh, and they valued people on those bases, on the hard work you put into. So when you put all of those together, I think a lot of people in life kind of come back and say, look how amazingly I did. But none of us really do that well, apart from where we came. I think 90% of who we are is the more the day we are conceived, our parents, the genetics, the yes. environment in which we are born into, right? I don't see a lot of people who were brought up into an illiterate family that was fighting, that, that was fleeing from, uh, from uh, bombs dropping on the villages of Afghanistan. Uh, their kids doing really well here because they have to fight so much harder to get to where we get into, if yes. that makes any sense to you. So we were all blessed, incredibly lucky the day we were almost born uh, and the families that shaped us and the environments that shaped us and the class in which we were born that did, shaped us. Did they, did they bring a lot of that engineering and cartography into daily life? Like was that? Yes, because it's the way you think, right? Mm. You approach, as an engineer, you approach every problem as something that can be solved, right? You, it's, it's, it's a way of thinking about life, and it's really interesting. I see a lot of people who see a problem, and they see the problem. What they don't do, and what maths teaches you, engineering teaches you, a way of looking at the world teaches you, is actually everything, is, if you deconstruct it to its smallest elements, and then look at those smallest elements and say, how do I reconstruct this? What do I have to do to solve each of this? So if you and I want to go up Himalayas, uh, we could look at a mountain and say, oh my gosh, how do I get up there, right? Or you could just look at the next step and say, that's the step I have to take. Right. That's a really easy step. The next step is very easy. 
And I think, and I think what engineering, what maths teaches you, it's how to deconstruct the problem into its elements and then rebuild the solution from the basics. And this is something that your, your, your father drummed into you? <laughs> well, I don't think they ever did this consciously. Right. I think that that just happens naturally because of what you talk about. You think, I mean, I, I see it in my own children, hmm. uh, where uh, we were, when they were much younger, they would always say, ah, oh, Dad, I can't do that, right? But now you hear them as they get older to say, how can I do that, right? So that I can't do has moved into how can I? And the next step will, of course, be they will figure out that actually it's about. So what brought you to England? Oh, in Iran, we had a revolution, as you know, in 1979. The schools all shut down, the universities shut down. My family was now a very religious family. So our family kind of got shut out. Um, I belonged to a part of, I was growing up by the Caspian Sea, like most beach resorts, it was not a very uh, uh, religious resort. So, uh, so I think I was just on the wrong side of the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> In many ways, not that I was against it, or I mean, I also went onto the streets and and, and uh, as a teenager got swept away with the excitement of change. But, but as it settled and as universities and schools and everything shut down, you know, you need to make those choices. And, and it became uncomfortable to stay, so I had to leave my city and then eventually leave my country. Did your whole family go? Or was it just no, here? I just came on my own. Oh. I came on my own. I was 15 or 16 when I first left my family, and of course it takes a long time to arrive. So by the time I got here, I was 16. Uh, and, uh, uh, and by the way, that is, at the time it looked like an awful thing, right? So as a, you, you'll go through all the emotions you can imagine, right? You lost your family, you lost your country, you don't speak languages, you don't understand the culture. You, you need to be amazing not to be depressed, right? So you, you go through depression, everything feels bad, right? But, but what you learn, if you come through this, what you learn is that any difficulty is eventually surmountable. And I tell you, Mike, that is the biggest lesson you can learn. I think, I think Malcolm Gladwell calls it desirable difficulties, right? Some difficulties are so horrible they breaks you. And that, those are awful. We see a lot of our children being bullied to a level that it breaks them. But if it doesn't break you, if you survive those, this old adage that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, I think it's true. So I'm incredibly grateful for the luck I had to lose everything my family had given me with the exception of the values and the insight uh, 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 drive that they had installed on us to then have to build it up again. So that led you into physics, right? You end up studying physics, was that? Correct. Right. Correct. So I came into UK and, you know, you're 16, you arrive, I didn't speak any language. <laughs> and, 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 and people tell you, okay, so you need to spend a year learning the language. Then they say you have to do two years to do your GCSEs. At the time, they were called O-levels. And then two years to do your A-levels. When you're 16, 
that sounds like an awfully long time to wait, right? Sounds like, okay, I'd be 21 before I go to university. <laughs> that, that just sounds like disaster. So, so I just locked myself in, in, in a room and I self-taught myself English and my A-levels and my O-levels and I passed those things. I got into UCL. Uh, which was great, so I managed to get to university at 18. So you actually, you actually self-taught yourself into a university grade position? Yes, I self-taught myself the A-levels and the O-levels. And, and, and by the way, again, these are not that difficult because you don't have all the social distraction, right? So you're just sitting at home and you're reading books and you are learning them and then delivering them. And I guess, again, a good thing about the Iranian Revolution was when the school shut down, we kind of had to, if you wanted to study, you had to self-teach. So you, right. you, that grinding was, uh, grounding was in you. Um, anyway, I, I, I just think that none of these things, I look at my own children now and say, wow, wouldn't it be impressive if they did the same? But they didn't have the same opportunities to learn in the smallest steps how to do the same. So I don't think any of these things are impressive. I just think the circumstances will force you to do things, but will also prepare you for those things to do. So how did you end up at Goldman Sachs? Um, I, I uh, did a PhD. I, 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 in, uh, in physics? In, in physics. Right. Uh, interaction of waves and currents uh, in turbulent flow. So nothing <laughs> as exciting as, uh, as what, quantum physics or... Th like thermodynamics? Exactly. Right. And, uh, and, uh, 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 and as you know, doing a PhD and being an academic does not pay much. So I built a business on the side just to pay uh, for my livelihood. I didn't have family who could pay for me at the time. Um, and, uh, and I got really lucky. That business did very well and we sold it. And the banker, it wasn't a major investment bank, but the banker who sold it for us, per hour of the money he or she made, it was so much higher. <laughs> And we thought, wow, that gig is really good. <laughs> you, so somebody who spends a lifetime building a business, you spend three months selling it, and, and like per hour basis, you do really, really well, right? So, and also being an immigrant, being an outsider, being a thing, you, you see these guys in a suit going to the city, you kind of think, wow, there is an appeal in that. So I became a banker and I utterly hated it. It had nothing to do with bankers, really decent. Some of my very good friends are bankers. It's not all this caricature that people say about banking I didn't like. I just didn't like uh, the motivations mm. uh, in banking. At the end of the day, it's all about money. Mm. And on one hand, and, on, and everything was also project-based. And that's the bit the builder in me never liked, right? Is that everything is a two, three months project and you move on, two, three months project, you move on. You're never really building. And, and, and I guess my father, as I said, was a builder, right? So we saw factories, roads he built, right? So my mother made maps. We could see these beautiful maps in great details being finished, right? And then. We as bankers did a transaction, right? I mean. <laughs> so, when you left Goldman Sachs, you you I think Circle was the, one of the first projects you you initiated, and uh, and so one of the things I found fascinating is that Babylon wasn't the first time you tried to reinvent the health business. So, why did you choose health? Uh, by complete accident. So I had a series of 
I, I had left uh, to build my own business. I actually started in e-learning, uh, but, uh, but, but the business we started uh, did too quickly too well. So the people we were buying it from, because we had an option to buy an existing business, once they saw how well it did, decided not to sell, but just to pay as a uh, the, the break fee, which was very good money for the amount of time we worked on it. So I, I then had nothing to do, if you wish, to look for my next project, in which case I went and did what I should have done a long time ago, which was a series of surgeries on my knee. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I went to do those, and I saw how bad the private hospitals were at the time, right? And I thought, if this is the best private hospital in London, and that's how bad it is, like a two, three star hotel, surely we could do better hospitals than that. So by pure chance, I got into, let's build hospitals. And then the, the maths works, the economics works, the average hospital at the time in UK was 50 years old if they were private, or 70 years old if they were public. So just building a new, start, a new uh, fleet of hospitals on its own that were modern, that were up to date, that, that then had new management techniques, just, just made sense. Even if we screwed up running of the hospitals, the real estate was. So I persuaded Lehman Brothers and Royal Bank of Scotland to give me $500 million to go and build this, the first chain. And of course, uh, what I didn't count on was for those to go bust, right? <laughs> <laughs> which, which shortly after they gave me the money or promised to give us the money, they went bust. Ah, so they only delivered part of the tranche Correct, correct. So we could only build a small number of hospitals. Uh, and and then, that, then we just said, okay, if we can't build hospitals now, let's just go and do run hospitals that already exist because we were doing such a good job running hospitals. Mm. So NHS gave us first a small uh, day surgical unit, then they gave us the UK's largest day surgical unit, then they asked us to build Europe's largest day surgical unit, and then we, they gave us the very first hospital ever given to anybody outside the NHS. And we, every time we took those, we turned them around, we made them into a phenomenally well-operated run hospital. So for instance, the hospital Hinchinbrook they gave us, uh, they had no other, they were thinking of shutting it down. Yes. It was one of the worst performing hospitals in NHS anywhere. And within six months, not we, but the staff, by just going back to the employees of the hospital and saying, okay, so now you're in charge, let's plan how we do this. Uh, we fundamentally changed that to become one of the best performing hospitals in the NHS. What, what were some of the key decisions you made? I mean, one of the things when I read about that case study was that you had more delegated decision making and you, know, you, looked, you looked at the operating model in different ways. What, what were some of the insights that you gathered from? So Mike, if you go back to basic principles of physics, right? I, I can, you and I are sitting on, on, a, on a desk uh, for, for your listeners. Uh, uh, and this is, this is a desk made of wood, I guess, right? I can take, if the task is to destroy that desk, the traditional model of management or the heroic model of management will take you, take a hammer and break it. And clap hands for the guy who broke it at the end. It's, it requires a strong person, da 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 da, and it's, that, it's only one this we could do at it. As a physicist, you and I know that if I can increase the pressure of the molecules on the top of this disk by a tiny bit over the molecules underneath this disk, 
this desk will shatter into pieces, right? There's nothing heroic about that. It's just these molecules doing more. So our big thing in our hospitals, what if we can make everybody to own the problem? to be in charge of their own unit, their own speciality, their own thing. So we made all the staff corners. One of the very first things I did in Circle was took 50% of my shares and donated to all our staff, right? Mm -hmm. Saying now we're partners, right? So everything we improve, we improve together. Uh, And the result of that was amazing. So your book is about exponential leadership. No one person Exponential leadership is entirely around can you enable everybody to make their own decisions to run their own thing. And by the way, there's nothing new about exponential growth, right, in a way. We all think it's new, but you look at the growth of the British Empire. That was exponential, right? Over a 100-year period, it took 20% of the land on the planet. Fascinating how it did it. It did it without any control from the cell. You had these buccaneers and you had these this, uh, tradesmen, like merchants, like you remember the merchant Siemens, right? So essentially you're saying it was, it was, they were self-organizing. Completely self-organizing. Actually, the British Empire fell apart. The last empire in the world actually fell apart when Telegram was invented. Right. Because they couldn't resist the temptation to then control. Exactly. When it went from... from uh, a ship will bring you a message and you send it back and it'll take six months to this event happening in six minutes, everything fell apart because everybody tried to self-manage. There's an individual you know about him better than anybody who is more responsible for shaping the 20th century than anybody else on the planet. And, and his name was, as you know, Frederick Taylor, right? And Frederick Taylor came out with a scientific management method. Which Time is, and motion studies which is all about, I measure everything, I analyze it at the top, I prescribe it down, that, that. So all our management systems work based on Taylorism, right? Uh, and, and that's how our universities teach people how to manage. That's how our uh, corporations are managed, right? By a small number of people in the top. That works if all you need to learn is the fact that you're going to improve by 10, 15%. If you're Mr. 15% as Jack Welsh was of GE, that's perfect. You could do this from the top. But if you're growing at 100%, 200%, 300% a year, it, it is impossible for any human being to keep this in their head. So then the job is not one of being a puppet master as a manager anymore, but is of being a gardener, of creating an environment in which Every plant can grow on its own. Okay, you have to weed, you have to nurture, you have to supply the new seeds, you have to supply the water, but you can't manage and run everything. And I think that's the secret to exponential growth, is the ability to bring brilliant people and let them grow the businesses, but also create an environment in which they let the layer below them and the layer below them. How, how do you manage those people then? I mean, KPIs don't become appropriate then. Yes. Uh, even objectives can be too um, fixed. Yes. But it, how do you stop it from just becoming some sort of hipster anarchy? Right. So you're absolutely right. It's incredibly difficult, right? Incredibly difficult because the ch- and, and you go wrong all the time, right? Anybody who gardens knows that things grow up that you don't want it to grow up, plants fruit in a way you don't want them to fruit. 
but it's a lot better than the alternative. Right. Right, which is let me manage and run everything. The garden is better than the gulag. Correct, <laughs> correct, absolutely right. And, and, and the other thing, Mike, is that you actually can control these things by, uh, by setting common objectives. As long as you know where the general direction is. i give you a great example. Sports teams are a brilliant example of this, professional sports teams. I actually think nowadays you have to run a company exactly in the same way that, say, uh, uh, Alec Ferguson ran a sports team, right? I was lucky enough once to have dinner with Ferguson when he was running Manchester United, and as an Arsenal supporter, I was in massive envy. So I asked, <laughs> how do you do such an incredible job, right? And, and what he said, which I thought was fascinating, he said, I actually don't do such an incredible job. Because if you think about what I do, I have an unlimited budget. I can pay hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, to a week to anybody who I can recruit from across the globe who want to come to work for me, and I only need 20 of them. And I need them to perform 90 minutes a week. That's it. <laughs> right? <laughs> Compare at the time I had 3,000 employees and I needed them to perform 40 to 60 hours a week. Fundamentally different, right? So his point was it's easier to do it that way. Getting, but now if you look at what a sports team does, even at that level, what it does, it puts the sports people on the, it trains them. They all know, say in football, uh, what the goal is. You have to get the ball into the net. But, and they're structured, they're organized, but nobody tells them every step to take. They play as they wish on the field, right? If they're playing badly, the manager has up to three changes that they can make during that game, and they can fire and change the team. Hmm. But that's the total level of control they have. So a high-level goal can give people more freedom, but it can also, as we remember with Enron, you can end up just having people uh, essentially inappropriately chasing things that would ultimately drag the company down. So how do you counterbalance it? Is it through values? Correct. Right. So goals mean nothing without values. Right. So, so what we say, we, one of the very first things we did, I did when I created Babylon was to write what I call This is Babylon or We are Babylon. And it's a little document, it's not much, but every employee in here needs to read it before they come in. They even read it before they come for an interview. Right. And it basically says what is our operating system in the simplest possible way. It says that, look, our public mission is to make healthcare accessible, affordable, put it in the hands of every human being on earth. Our private mission, our secret mission, to do so in the most humane way possible, to not be assholes, to be good human beings to each other, to make this place a wonderful place to work. And then we say in order to do that, we need to do the following things. One is we need to only hire exceptional people. Because if I'm going to give you all the autonomy to do whatever you want to do, I need you to be exceptional. So I want, we look for, when we are hiring people, we do three things. One is make sure they're exceptional. They're in one, two percent of the people in their field. We are highly democratic in our objective, but incredibly elitist in who we let to work here. Two is we, uh, have to have something amazing for them to do because amazing people need amazing things to do. And three, I always ask the question that would I let that person bring up my children? If they don't have the right kind of values, we don't let them in. And we've let a lot of people who are exceptional human beings not in 
because we just didn't like them. Uh, and we didn't think they'd do well in here uh, because of their morality, their values. Uh, and then when we bring them in, we say, okay, now we need you to know what makes me a great CEO. If, if I was a great CEO, it's two things. One is I know everything about our company. So I have unlimited knowledge about everything, give or take. And I have the permission to act on that knowledge, right? So if that's what I need to do my job, well, why doesn't everybody else? So we have what we call a Babylonian brain. So everybody in here has access to all the information they want to have. Even today where we announced a highly secret deal we were working on with Samsung, that deal was in the making for two years. It never got leaked. And everybody in this business knew about that deal. Right, so you have and radical transparency. Radical transparency, but radical trust. So let's talk a little bit more about um, Babylon itself, because one of the things that I find fascinating about the business is that it's not just a way of delivering uh, healthcare via a digital channel. It represents a scaled up way of delivering a service affordably to potentially the entire world. And to that end, you've, you know, today you announced the deal with Samsung. You've previously announced an amazing deal with Tencent for China. And uh, also you've been for many years working in Africa. So what has been your approach to scale? How do you take, and there's not enough doctors to serve all of those people. So how do you take the expertise of a few and scale it up for many? So it's, it's, it's a really good point. Cost in healthcare sit in two buckets, right? There's nowhere else. 70% of all the money we spend in healthcare goes into salaries. So if I have to get doctors and nurses to serve everybody, I am not gonna reduce the cost. And remember, this $10 trillion we spend today in healthcare only serves, only serves uh, half of the world population. Half of the world population has zero access to healthcare, according to the World Health Organization. So, and, and we don't just have enough doctors to serve them. Even if we had the money, there is not enough doctors. So there's got to be another solution. And the only other solution is what Google did with, health, with, with information. Google didn't go and set up libraries everywhere. Google created a free library for everybody to be able to access. And that's what you need to do. You need to create free medicine, free healthcare, so everybody can access it. And the cost of delivery should be zero so everybody can get a zero. Now, artificial intelligence, once you built it, it's very low cost to deliver. So if we can deliver, if we can recreate the ability of a doctor by a machine to do some of what a doctor can do, a machine actually, in my view, will soon be able to diagnose significantly better than any human doctor can. You just think about it, right? It's computational probability analysis and modeling, right? How can a human brain operate at the level of complexity a machine can, right? But, but there are things a machine cannot do. A machine cannot put its hand on your shoulder and say, Mike, I look after you, trust me. Right? So we let humans be human and let the machines take that burden of computational nonsense away from them. Uh, and, and, and then what you have, I think it's highly possible to make it possible for every human being on earth to talk to a machine, give it its uh, symptoms, get an accurate diagnosis, as accurate as a human being will give it and eventually more accurate of what is wrong with them, to be told exactly what's the right treatment for that uh, disease. Remember, for human doctors, it takes 17 years 
for best practice to become common practice. A machine can do that instantaneously, right? Yeah. When something's the best practice, you just tell the machine and that's it. That's the thing it goes for every locality. It can help people through recovery. If you have a long-term disease, a machine can help you to manage yourself through that long-term disease. It can make recommendation in the same way a machine makes recommendation to you on what movie to watch and what restaurant to go to. It can make that recommendation on how to live, elongate your life. So Those at, things a machine can do, and so, it can do it for everybody. So at the moment, how are you leveraging human doctors to train these algorithms? What, what's, what's sort of the ingest process of, of, of transferring what's in their heads into the, into the neural networks? So the reality is most, most knowledge in medicine is not a human's brain. It's in the books that taught those humans. So we actually take the data and the books and the literature and the knowledge base that fed those doctors initially and we train the machine on those. Right. We also train that and then we put and, and then we put the machine to test. And then we have the doctors to almost correct it. So the machine is self-teaching itself. Right. Because the models where a doctor teaches the machine all the time, that's a highly unscalable model. Right. So the, the, the machines are learning on the knowledge base and the doctors are essentially correcting the Correct. Exactly. Tweaking it, testing it. Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example. If you, if you uh, take a simple example like a tummy hurts, uh, in average I need to ask you about 20 questions to know what is the disease that relates to that tummy problem. Right. It's either stomach cancer or it's like you've just, you know, just had a bad apple or something. Exactly. So imagine each question I ask you have four different answers. So four to the power of 20 would be, I don't know, a billion, billion point zero six, something like that. And so imagine now you need to calculate or write down a billion different variations for one thing. I mean, there's just no human being who can do that. I can't hire enough doctors. That's why these old rule-based models never worked, because you could do them for a very small subset to triage, but you could never diagnose precisely. Right. What's changed now is that we have computing power and enough data and enough knowledge base that we can now process this at, at magnificent rates. Um, and I think it'll be world changing. It will be world changing. So how many doctors work at the moment with you? And, and what do they mainly do? So we have two set of services for doctors, two uses. One is doctors who help our scientists and our mathematicians and our engineers to train the machines. They're actually not that many. Uh, they are a uh, small group because we need them to be exceptionally accurate, academic, scientific in their approach, right? And then, of course, we have doctors who, who uh, do diagnosis for our patients. And that is also very important for us. So that's why we choose our doctors incredibly carefully. Actually, one of the main reasons you should ever use Babylon as a thing is not for its convenience, it's for the brilliance of its doctors. Right. Because we need to pick our doctors really carefully because these doctors through their practice are also teaching our machines uh, every time they practice, right? Uh, so we can't have them wrong, right? So, uh, so that's why for almost every hundred applications we receive for doctors who want to work for us, we employ one or two. Right. What are you looking for when you, when you like, what, what are the characteristics? 
of this sort of doctor that can work in this environment? So we look for two things. We look for empathy and people who can be really nice and good and provide service to you on the other side of a phone well, right? And not every doctor can do that. Unfortunately, a lot of our doctors, not our doctors, but doctors in the world, have been trained to be told, look, you're exceptional, you're special, thank you for looking after me, so it's okay not to be really nice to me. So there is a lot of doctors in the world who unfortunately don't treat patients very well. Right. A lot do, but a lot don't, and we all had experience. So we're trying to look for people who are very affable, empathetic, nice to patients, and give patients a great service, on one hand, of course. On the other hand, we're looking for doctors who can learn fast, because medicine is changing so fast, the kind of doctor who doesn't want to upgrade, learn, it's just not for us. On the other, now we've got rid of our two hands, so let's go to the feet. On, on, on the other feet, we will look for doctors who uh, are accurate. We test them a lot. We put diagnostic cases to them to see whether they are, they're capable or not. So we look a lot for ability in these doctors. And finally, uh, we look for uh, uh, we look for doctors who are not arrogant because we want them to start, as the machine gets better and better, we want them to start on one hand to trust the machine, so not be too arrogant to say, what is this rubbish, I don't believe in it. But on the other hand, we want them to be strong enough to say, yes, that's what the machine has told me, but actually I'm going to use my own brain and be critically judge whether what is told me is right. Because it's when you put these two degrees of, um, if you want, counterbalances, two gateway to accuracy, so the machine diagnoses and then the doctor takes that diagnosis and diagnoses at the top of that, your accuracy goes up fourfold and not twofold. Right. Because This is something you've tested? Yes, because, because what you have, I mean, that's not even true about just diagnosis, it's true about anything. When, when a person plays chess, a chess master plays chess with artificial intelligence, they don't just become a little bit better, they become a lot better. And the same it happens with the machine, because what you have is two degrees of, it's, uh, of uh, um, if you want, uh, two layers of security now, right? right, as opposed to the one, right? So you're not just benchmarking the doctors algorithmically, you're bracketing, essentially. Correct. Right. Correct. Do, do you see human doctors? And by the way, in that, Mike, I'm so sorry to, that in, you and I are in England where doctors are correct 75 to 80% of the time. You go to some countries, World Health Organization says doctors are wrong 80% of the time, 80% mm. of the time in rural India. Right. Right. Then, I mean, it's, it's fantastic to be able for an Indian farmer to be able to talk to its mobile phone or type into its mobile phone or whatever. Soon, soon natural language processing will enable us to talk in any language in any accent. Is this just a transition phase where the, the, you've got lots of doctors working for you because the systems aren't sophisticated enough to handle all diagnosis? Yes. And that ultimately the human beings will either be playing an empathetic role or they'll be operating as some kind of, at a meta level of... You know. I, I honestly don't know. And I don't think anybody does. Uh, you know the old physics paper about the chaos theory that Lorenz wrote? And the title was, 
the famous, the title everybody remembers was that if a butterfly flaps its wings in Brasilia, there will be a, a tornado or a hurricane in Texas. And of course, the ending of that title was, or there may not be. <laughs> and that's just the reality. The number of possibilities ahead of us is so manifold on what's going to happen to artificial intelligence that anybody who tells you I know how it's going to go, complete rubbish. Nobody knows. Look at the game that my good friends in uh, DeepMind played with the with the, a, with the AI agent who was supposed to collect the apples and had a laser. At the beginning, they just collected the apples. Eventually, they figured out if I collect the apple and shoot the next guy, I can then take her apples too. And then eventually, after millions of playing the time, they just said, actually, why am I doing this? Let me shoot everybody first. And then <laughs> I have all the apples, right? Nobody thought the machine would become so violent so fast. And it was, of course, the logical thing to do because if you're thing is to win by having more stab holes, that's the thing you should have done. And the machine learned it very quickly, right? Um, there are so many unforeseen consequences that we just have no idea which way the history is going to go. And by the way, in that lies the danger of artificial intelligence. Both the opportunities of artificial intelligence, but also the dangers of artificial intelligence. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Mm-hmm.